What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episodes three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hey everybody, Larry Wilmore here, and welcome back to Black on the Air. It's good to have you listening in. Um, Got a fun show today with Mr. Bob Costas from HBO's uh, Back on the Record. I was uh, on his show years ago. Bob, by the way, Bob Costas is one of my favorite people. Been a big fan of his for as long as I can remember. And uh, so much fun to talk to him about sports and journalism and all that stuff. I think you'll enjoy that conversation, even if you don't like sports, even if you're not into it. I think you will enjoy it. Um, So I hope you guys are doing good. We had a... I think I was off last week. I have no concept of time. I apologize for that. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right, because that uh, the election happened and everything, and I, I think I missed it. I don't think I talked about that. Um, the Florida governorship and some of that stuff, and Biden um, over in, I think, in Scotland, just farting in front of everybody, I think, has been going on. He finally passed the infrastructure bill, thank God. You know, I thought it was such a mistake not to pass that thing. But I think it's good. I think I I like it when they actually do something the right way, you know, with actual votes, you know, and use the the process, the correct process of government. This whole Build Back Better thing. Good luck with that, man, because, you know, it's all, you know, being done through, uh, uh, you know, let's call it, you know, tricks and budget tricks and all that kind of stuff, which is a lot harder. They did Obamacare that way. Uh, through reconciliation is what it is. It's a lot harder to do it that way. And I just think it's not a good way to do it. But uh, anyhow, there you go. So anyhow, guys, you know, I was watching the uh, some of the election returns. And I, I know this is people have commented on this stuff. So I'm not going to be specific about what happened and everything. But something kept bugging me. And especially this was happening a lot in MSNBC and CNN, too. It's all the commentary about um, what is happening in these elections. And I personally feel that race and racism is way too overused in these, uh, in the commentary of what's going on right now. Way too overused. Guys, remember I told you guys, if racism is out there, I will tell you when, <laughs> when it rears its ugly head. I am here for you guys. I did it on the nightly show. I'm happy to do it here. I said, as long as this racial shit keeps happening, I will keep talking about it. And I promise you, I will do that. But I honestly think 
there are some there's racial commentary going on when there shouldn't be it and it makes things messy and you know what i like to do i the biggest thing i try to give you guys is clarity you don't even have to take a side in this i just try to provide you a little clarity and i think a lot of the racial commentary is making things muddy i really do and by racial commentary let me be even be more specific I think there is way too much use of the word white supremacy, way too, of the term white supremacy, way too much, way too much. And it's usually just thrown over to Republicans or white supremacists. You know, if, if you're a Republican, you're right. You're a white supremacist. If you're a conservative, you're a white supremacist, supremacist. If you're on the right, you're a white supremacist, you know, and there's no examination of what white supremacy really is or how it indeed plays a factor or what's really going on. It's, I, I feel that it's very lazy. Are there white supremacists around? Of course, you know, do, do I personally think white supremacy is the thing that is motivating a lot of these elections? Guys, I honestly don't. I really, really don't. There's so many issues that are going around, but this whole trying to get people scared about white supremacy, guys, white supremacy has been along for <laughs> It's thousands of years, thousands. I'm going to suddenly get a, a scared. I'm a scared of white supremacy right now. I don't think so. Um, I don't think that's what is motivating politics these days um, in the way that you are being led to believe that it is. There's a difference between people being prejudiced and bigoted or even racist or whatever. And what is, what is really motivating movements? What is behind movements? What are the things that are pushing things? And at certain points, believe me, guys, especially here in the United States, certainly racism and the threat, the black threat, let's call it, you know, has certainly been a motivation for much of politics in this country in different areas. I don't know if that's the case now, that that's what's motivating any particular side. I believe there are fringe elements of that, but I don't think that the general is that, the, in terms of the movement itself. And I know I'm going to get a lot of disagreement about this, and that's okay, because I'm just positing this as a way to, to look at this differently. And by the way, you don't have to try to school me, guys. I don't disagree with a lot of your, a lot of the opinions on this. You don't have to try to convince me of something. I'm just making a side point. I'm not saying you know, that racists aren't out there and that, you know, there's animus towards people of color, blah, 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 blah. I am saying that this blanket statement about white supremacy is is overused. And it really is overused. And a lot of it is just lazy commentary and is not very thoughtful. I really do. And it's not really getting to, to me the um, the real heart of of what what is the real point of view of what's coming out um, both the left and the right. And this is one of those both sides argument. I know you guys don't like, many people don't like both sides, but I don't care because I do. Um, and the the extreme um, definitions that come from both sides is people on the right feel that people on the left are anti-American and they are very much interested in the destruction of America, that they feel America is the evil empire and they will not be happy until America is completely destroyed. And the thing they want destroyed most in America is its value system, you know, and that's what they feel. And so a lot of the way they look at the left is through that lens, you know, 
this anti um the people on the left are anti-american you know and so when they want government programs or things that they call socialism they feel that it's from an anti-american point of view um people on the left of course look at the right as racist that everything is about race on the right where they believe in not just an um an American ideal, but a white American ideal. And they're very much threatened by people of color. And they feel that there is an extinction level event that is on the horizon. <laughs> and that event is the disappearance of white people. And they have to do everything they can to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, are there people on these sides that hold those views? Absolutely. You know, but is that what's really motivating the majority of people on the right and the left? People who aren't politicians, people who aren't activists, people who are just um, view the world in a, from a certain point of view. And what happens is the choices that they have to make, unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, are maybe taken over by people that have maybe some of these other ideas. And so they get shifted into there, you know, uh, who knows? But let me just give you maybe a different way to look at where people are coming from. How about that? Let's put it like that. I'm not going to disagree with you about um, racism or anti-Americanism or whatever. I'm going to say, let's say that that does exist on both sides. I will disagree to the extent of which it's important or which it does exist, but let's say that it does. So that's not our argument. I'm not trying to disprove that. I'm trying to give us some room to to look at this from a, a, a different type of position. And why am I doing this? Because I really do think, I've always considered myself a centrist, and I know people hate centrists and that stuff. They think what a centrist is is somebody who sits on the fence and doesn't have an opinion. It's really not. Uh, from my point of view, um, centrism is rooted more in pragmatism. It's more, it's, it's better to say that I'm a pragmatist more than a centrist. It just so happens that centrist is kind of the word that's used. And by pragmatist, I feel that the best way to do something should be the way to do something <laughs> rather than the thing that I feel fits my system of beliefs should always be the way to do something, regardless of whether it's the best way or not. Okay. That's what a pragmatist is. I'm going to give up on my belief system, whatever that is, and I will do what I think is the best way to do something. And best could be defined as the thing that is the most profitable in a, in a company situation, maybe in a religious situation, the thing that's most moral. It could be the thing that helps people the most in a government situation, whatever it is. Most efficient way, but a pragmatist, centrist, pragmatist, me, the way that I view the world is what's the best approach? And I have to be willing to drop my opinion about what I think it is, you know? But we live in a world now where the opinion is the most important thing, where your point of view, the side that you're on is the most important thing. And pragmatism is not. You think it's the best way because that's the side you're on, but it may or may not be. You may get lucky and it is. You may not. And it is. Okay. So having said that, I want to present to you just some stuff I've been thinking about. <laughs> and it's, it's a little crazy, but I think it's kind of interesting of how uh, I'm looking at where uh, I'm going to call them right and left, where they're, how they're kind of viewing the world and kind of the ironies in some of these. 
and I'm not taking sides with either of this. I'm just observing it right now because I'm, I'm creating room right now for pragmatism. Okay. That's what I'm doing right now. We already have enough people giving you the ideology. All right. So I believe that right and left opinions, interestingly enough, are divided by Charles Darwin. <laughs> I know it sounds bizarre. I would say it again. I believe that right and left opinions more or less are divided by <laughs> Charles Darwin in a very interesting way. Darwin is the fulcrum. He's the access point for where people choose to switch how they view the world. And I'm going to explain that more. Um, where um, um, Jesus Christ and Christianity, the life of Christ, I believe, is the access point to what we feel is the ancient world and the modern world in many aspects, right? Where I think Darwin is the access point to what I believe people feel is the divine ordered world and the secular ordered world, the government ordered world, let's just say, the divine and secular. And I will say, you know, Christ is the ancient and modern, different way to look at it. Okay, stay with me for a while here. Here's what's interesting. Charles Darwin, of course, is the uh, scientist philosopher uh, whose tome, The Origin of the Species, shook up the world, still has ramifications today, where he... Uh, I think the first significant person to suggest that the world was not created as many people felt by this God, this supernatural being in six days or seven days, whatever it was, when in fact there is an evolution of species that happened. Um, the origin of the species, I believe was his uh, paper, the origin of the species. So there was this evolution event that happened. Species started out very simply and over time they evolved. And the manner in which they evolved was through this thing we call survival of the fittest. I don't know if Darwin used that term, but it certainly is a term associated with him. He may have. What is survival of the fittest? It means that the fittest species over time will be the ones to continue on. You know, that is how they survived. This was revolution at the time. It was heretical, of course, um, because before then, the world was a divine world. It was created by a God and this God had a plan for the world. And, and there was a, people played a divine, you know, their part in this divine role, right? Very interesting. This, the whole Darwin moment here in history. Um, so when I look at the right and the left and how they operate in the world, it's very interesting guys, because People on the right, well, let's, let's talk about people on the left. People on the left agree with Darwin's theory about the world up to the point of Darwin and then disagree past the point of Darwin. <laughs> people on the right disagree with Darwin up to the point of Darwin and then agree with Darwin past the point of Darwin. So let me explain that. So, uh, Darwin believes that there was a survival of the fittest, that is this origin of the species, that these organisms evolved. People on the right disagree with that. They believe God created the world. You know, seven days, six days, if you're 
you know, a literalist, but even if it wasn't, maybe there's the uh, intelligent design that people say or whatever, but God did this. There was a divine order. Sorry, Darwin, that didn't happen. But they believe past Dar post Darwin in the modern world, there should be a philosophy of survival of the fittest. People on the right love survival of the fittest post Darwin. We need to let the boats rise that are there to rise. Government should get out of the way so the fittest can do what they do and do it well. It's very, the people on the right and conservatives have a very Darwinian view of how people should operate in relationship with their governments. Very Darwinian. Let people do what they do. Let human nature determine the marketplace. The marketplace should be human nature centered. It's a natural world that should determine the marketplace, right? It's very Darwinian. Pre-Darwinian, though, it's very divine. Sorry, yeah, God did this. Sorry, Darwin. Natural world had nothing to do with this. <laughs> you know, Very interesting, right? The left, on the other hand, agrees with pre-Darwin. You're absolutely right, Darwin. The uh, world wasn't created in six, seven days. I mean, what about the dinosaurs? You know, I agree with you. Organisms evolved. Of course, you look at Lucy, you know, <laughs> this chimpanzee eventually became us. There are all these different... Uh, homo species, you know, the ones that were fittest survived. Post-Darwin, though, the left said, mm, I don't like the survival of the fittest. I think the government should intervene in the affairs of mankind. We should not allow the natural world to just operate on its own. The government, in some ways, is the divine interceder in that. You know, that's what economic inequality is all about. People have a problem with economic inequality because it expresses the outcome of a natural order of things, you know, when people are left to their own devices and they feel that the government, this divine intervention needs to step in and do something about that. Sorry. Fuck you, Darwin. Uh-uh. Ain't no survival of the fittest here. They believe in the responsibility of the fittest more than the survival of the fittest, that the responsibility of the fittest is they have a moral obligation to take care of those that are not. I will call that, I'm calling that a government divine intervention. Completely different way of viewing the world. Different philosophy. Right? Okay. So it's very interesting. So this is where people are coming from. And this is just a fun thing. I just love doing stuff like this, using Darwin as a way to look at this. So as a person who is a pragmatist, a central, I try to understand where people are coming from primarily. You know, when I cut out all the stuff that you can't argue with, you know. Um, and I believe as a pragmatist that a little bit of both is actually kind of a good thing. There is a place for uh, human nature to have a huge role, uh, especially in determining um, our fates and that type of thing, um, especially in innovation human nature plays a huge part of innovation how people innovate how that operates ingenuity um, entrepreneurship those type of things on the other hand i believe government especially governments like the united states have a huge role in providing um stop gaps for people so they don't you know their lives aren't so horrible you know to no fault of their own many times you know especially in the areas of health and things like that you know Absolutely, the government takes a role and people should not be abandoned just because 
you know, either they've had bad luck or they're in bad situations or they make mistakes, you know? I don't believe that healthcare is a right. I believe that is an obligation. I believe it's the obligation of a wealthy and healthy and free society to take care of those that are not that. So I can see the value in both of those, you know, and where that comes from. But I just thought I would share that with you guys. It's an interesting way to look at what is at the at the bottom of this point of view, you know. And like I said, I acknowledge that there are people in there that are bad actors, you know, <laughs> and all that stuff. But if you want to understand where people are coming from in a different way, Take any issue that they have and look at it from this point of view and see if it subscribes to that, if it lines up to that, you know, where it does and where it doesn't. It's an interesting way to look at things, and it may allow you to not only see something differently, but if you have a different point of view, it actually may give you a better argument against it, you know. It can actually help your argument to have a better understanding where people are coming from rather than dismissing someone completely as racist or whatever or anti-American and you don't even need an argument to debate with them. Why do you need an argument? They're not worth debating if they're that, you know, but if someone is worthy debating, what is your argument? Where are you coming from? And do you understand the nature of theirs? Just helps you to be a better debater, better understanding. I'm trying to get us all to understand each other. (laughs) Don't do it. Larry. People are evil. They're going to get you. Yeah, maybe. All right, guys. Um, we got Bob Costas coming up right after this. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. All right, welcome back, everybody. You know what? I told you this is a year of treats. And once again, we have a special treat, guys. These treats, I want to—I want you to keep in mind, these treats are primarily for me. You guys are the secondary beneficiary of these treats. Because this is one of my favorite uh, broadcasters, journal, sports journalists. Uh, he's been around for a long time. His show later, to me, is still one of the best shows ever in late-night television the 28-time Emmy winner, you guys. And he's back on the record at HBO. Bob Costas, welcome to Black on the Air. Bob, it's an honor to have you here, my friend. Hey, Larry. How are you doing? Thanks for the kind words. Sure. It, I am so happy to see you back on television in in the forum that you are. I love you inter, you know, interviewing people, having a longer forum to talk to people and that kind of stuff. It's got to be fun to be in that saddle again, right? Yeah, it really is. You know, HBO, even though it now has competitors, it's still a whole position as the gold standard. So much sports, drama, comedy, you know, it's just the place to be. Uh, And it's great to be back there. I had such a wonderful run at Mm -hmm. NBC, lasted almost 40 years. Wow. But it was nobody's fault that toward the end, Mm -hmm. they just didn't have anything that really was completely true to me. For about 30 years, almost everything I did there, in and out of sports, it was kind of like, yeah, that's what he should be doing. That's right. And then yeah. the end, it was kind of like, well, yeah, it's NBC and it's Bob and it's sports. So I guess he should be doing it. But I just didn't feel as connected to it. So now back at HBO and also doing some stuff on the Major League Baseball Network, 
that's pretty much all I want to do now. The, the audience may be smaller and the number of times on the air may be fewer, mm-hmm. but almost all of it is exactly true to me. So that's a more comfortable place to be. It's kind of uh, we're kind of in this era of more authenticity. You know, it's a, allows you to feel more authentic to operate with more authenticity, this type of thing, rather than, as you say, being in a place where you have to kind of be constrained by what that corporate environment is telling you. Yeah. And, you know, you and I and others like us are lucky in that we made a mark of some kind earlier. Mm -hmm. It allows the luxury now of saying, you know, I guess maybe the, uh, the analogy would be somebody who's been in a bunch of blockbuster films mm-hmm. and now we can go do art films yeah. because they know his name. So they'll still cast him, you know, and, sure. and bring some kind of art and he doesn't have to reach for the largest possible paycheck. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice place to be at this stage. It's kind of what how HBO was viewed actually in the beginning, you know, was kind of yeah. uh, that's where the artists went to kind of do their thing. That Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm, he had made all this money in Seinfeld. And he, that first Curb was kind of a lark. It was like kind of a yeah. comedy special. It was him just doing his thing. And look what it turned into. You know. And, you know, it's amazing. You know, he takes these little breaks. There's no regular schedule. He comes back when he's got it <laughs> exactly. on, on his own terms. But when he comes back, there's no fall off in quality. Yeah. What is it... Uh, I always wanted to ask you, because you've been doing this for so long, Bob, and at such a high level, you've, I think from the first moment, I I think I saw you, you were already at this level, you know, it seems like, what, but what is it about sports that reels you in and that always has? Were you, as a kid, were you enthralled by sports and taken in by it and all that? Yeah, I was, you know, I talked about it last night on HBO and the latest back on the record, at least I talked about it in part. Mm-hmm. My father was a big stakes gambler. It wasn't necessarily the best thing for family life, oh, wow. but it definitely connected me to him. Now, I think I would have been a sports fan because the other kids loved baseball and whatever, and their dads didn't have the same profile as mine. But the fact that he had these games going all the mm-hmm. time, any game he could pull in on the radio or on television, mm-hmm. um, and I would sit and watch the games with him. And he was very knowledgeable. So a lot of that seeped in. And at the same time, by osmosis, I'm listening to the broadcasters. And I'm thinking that their voices are inseparable from the games themselves. So I don't know how big a percentage of me winding up where I am uh, can be traced to my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly, uh, or ironically, he died when he was only 42 years old. And I was 18, a senior in high school. So he mm-hmm. never saw or heard a single thing that I did. But I've often thought, would he be as angry with me as he sometimes was with the broadcasters who were bringing him bad news? Mm. God damn it, my own kid is pissing me off. <laughs> I just lost $1,000, and he sounds really excited about it. And the sports world has come full circle, kind of embracing your dad's uh, <laughs> whole relationship with gambling yeah. and the sport, right? Yeah. yeah, that's what the commentary was about last night. Not moralizing, hey, gambling's always been part of sports. You know, it's kind of a, my dad's was more of a Runyon-esque sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. I thought there was more color to it and mm-hmm. more humanity to it than somebody just betting on a cold, impersonal app. But yeah. it's always been part of it, and now it's out in the open. But the leagues that once tried to keep it at arm's length now not only accept it, they embrace and encourage it. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people are going to bet, you know, for fun and within Completely. reason. But inevitably there will be collateral damage. Um, it's just part, it comes with the deal. 
Yeah, it's and with anything like that, you know, people are going to get hurt. People are going to lose money. You know, yeah. unfortunate situations are going to happen. It's like with drugs in this situation, it's probably better to have it out in the open and a legal thing rather than an illicit thing where there's probably could be more damage. Do you think, though, with it more out like this, that baseball is finally going to do the right thing with Pete Rosen by the right thing? Put that guy in the Hall of Fame. You know, it becomes more and more ridiculous. Now, no one is justifying or no knowledgeable person justify what he did. There were specific rules against it. Even if he didn't bet against his own team, the rule was clear. It was Mm -hmm. posted prominently in every clubhouse. If you bet on a game in which you are involved, doesn't matter whether you bet for or against your own team, the punishment is lifetime banishment. Now, that may seem extreme, Mm -hmm. but that was the rule. Plus, on top of it, although Pete had a lot of virtues that were appealing as a baseball player, the way he approached the game, the way he hustled, all the passion, um, that actually embodied a lot of what draws people to baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's a plus for him. On the other hand, there are some unsavory things that I'm not going to bother to defend. But to your point, if guys who used steroids, either Mm -hmm. admittedly or obviously, are on the Hall of Fame ballot, and some we have reason to believe are already in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. They directly cheated the game. They directly cheated their competitors. Pete Rose never cheated the game. He gave an all-out effort, and he got 4,256 hits, more than anybody ever. The Houston Astros were caught in a sign-stealing scandal. Yeah, none of the players except to their reputation, the damage to their reputations. But none of the players were directly punished. Alex Cora, who was the bench coach, then was with the Boston Red Sox. He was suspended for a year. Jeff Lunau, who was the general manager, president of the team, was suspended for a year. Cora is back managing the Red Sox. A.J. Hinch is managing the Tigers, as they should be, a fair and proportionate punishment. Lunau hasn't been hired by anybody yet, but he's available and can be hired should anybody want to do so. So these are people that directly cheated the game. Uh, A-Rod was suspended for steroid use. Mm-hmm. He sued baseball. Now, not only is he back in baseball's good graces, he's on ESPN Sunday night baseball. He's on Fox. And he's World's good. Coverage. Yeah, he's, of course he's, he's good at it. The, the point here is not that these people went unpunished, but that the punishment came and went. And once mm-hmm. the time was served, they returned, they returned to the game. Pete Rose is now more than 30 years and counting, and he's 80 years old. Nobody who understood the issue ever thought that he should have been reinstated to baseball in order to be employed by a team. All that most fans wanted was that what he did be recognized by history and that he have his his recognition in the Hall of Fame. Um, And now with baseball not just accepting gambling, but actually actively encouraging it. There's mm-hmm. going to be a betting parlor next season in Wrigley Field. That's crazy. <laughs> going to get a beer and a hot dog and then throw 500 bucks down on the game, you know? So it, it, it becomes kind of more and more ridiculous to keep Pete at arm's length this way. It's very hypocritical. It just, yeah, the punishment far outweighs the uh, crime. Uh, in this, it's like he killed somebody or something the way that Major League Baseball is treating it. You know, you know what, Larry, not to mix apples and oranges. There are baseball offenses and there are differences between those penalties that, a, that an organization levies and criminal penalties. But as a matter of fact, 
there have been people involved in homicides who have been paroled after 30 years or less. Absolutely. And look at all the sports people that have done those types of crimes and were forgiven. It's, uh, yeah, we, you know, Al Capone goes to prison for tax evasion, but all the murders, you know, <laughs> that's okay. They, they got them the only way they could get them. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is a little different. Uh, who were, you know, to another wisp of nostalgia before we get into it, who were some of, did you have sports idols growing up, people, uh, both athletes? And I also want to ask you about uh, broadcasters, too. Did you look up to both of those types of uh, people? Did you have people who influenced you and were your idols? Yeah. Um, when I first became aware of sports, late 1950s, early 1960s, baseball was still the unquestioned national pastime. That's right. Football since passed it, but baseball was, was central. And all the kids in my neighborhood in New York were baseball fans. We all collected baseball cards. We traded them. We flipped them. We put the ones that weren't as valuable on the spokes of your bike. I, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, we all did that. So this is the way it broke down. My cousin, a cousin of mine, I have many cousins, but one in particular is my closest lifelong friend. Mm -hmm. And he's two years older than me. So he was old enough to remember Willie Mays with the New York Giants before they went to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't. I was five when the Dodgers and Giants left. Willie Mays was his favorite player. Mickey Mantle was my favorite player because when I became aware of baseball, really able to follow it, mm -hmm. Mets didn't exist. The Dodgers and Giants had left. There was one team in New York. That team was the Yankees, and their greatest player was Mickey Mantle. Mm -hmm. So he and I kind of embodied that era's baseball debate, who's greatest, Mantle or Mays? In the long run, the argument was settled in favor of Mays because he was greater longer. But right. there was a period of 10 or 12 years when they were pretty much neck and neck. You know what's interesting? Why do you think baseball has fallen out of favor in America? It's not the pastime anymore. It It's just not as popular as it used to be. And the irony of it is about... Like that period you talk about, remember, baseball broke the color barrier, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson. And now it seems like hardly any American blacks are even interested in the game anymore. But And it's not just in that area. It just doesn't feel like it captures the imagination of people the way it used to. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. There are more people of color than ever before um, in baseball because there's such a large influx of Hispanic talent. Sure. Uh, and even more and more, although it's not as large in number, it's still significant, Asian players. Yes. But in terms of American-born Black players, it's in single digits percentage-wise, whereas in the 70s, it was in the mid-20s. And it, it is an issue that baseball has been trying to address with uh, programs uh, in the inner city to get kids involved. Uh, Harlem RBI is a big thing. Reviving baseball in the inner cities is what mm -hmm. RBI stands for in this case. Um, and there are a number of of very bright young African-American stars in baseball that have kind of been out there trying to get kids, trying to get kids involved. But football and basketball, you know, when I was a kid, the NBA was still a kind of a fledgling league. Think of what's happened in the ensuing generations. Right. Dr. J and Magic and Larry Bird and the Michael Jordan era. Not only was the NBA popular, it was culturally hip. Mm -hmm. um, right. And base, baseball is trying, you know, baseball has a lot of really good, charismatic young players mm -hmm. of diverse backgrounds. Uh, and they tr they're trying to market that. 
But one of the things that hurts it now is that in an era where people's attention spans have been diminished, yes, you know, we're all all, all over the place. We can't even. Right. I have to check myself even. Where yeah. I, I'm watching something that's very interesting, but I'm still looking at my phone. I'm doing five things at once. A baseball game that used to take two and a half hours I know. now takes four hours, and it's plodding along, and it just challenges the modern brain wiring. Yeah, it really does. You know, I don't see young people talking about those athletes the way that they used to. I mean, you the way you talked about Mantle and Mays, it's like you're still mm -hmm. a kid. You know, you have that. I can hear it in your voice. You have that same admiration for it. Like kids talk yeah. about LeBron in that way, you know, or even in, in football, Patrick Mahomes, you know, and that type yeah. of thing. That it feels like, and for whatever, like we had Mike Trout here in Los Angeles. This is one of the best players, you know, to play the game in a long time. Like, I never hear people talking about Mike Trout. Like, even in the media here, he wasn't even made a Los Angeles media star in the way that he should have been. Well, part of the problem is that as great as he's been for a decade, uh, the Angels only made the playoffs one time. Yes. In that and right. they, it, they lost in the preliminary series, the division series. They lost three straight games. Yeah. So, no team has ever even won a playoff game uh, with Mike Trout on the roster. So he's never gotten to the bigger stage. Baseball tries like crazy to market him, but you need to be on the biggest stage to have those iconic moments that yeah. are set in, in people's minds. Meanwhile, his teammate, Shohei Otani, was oh. the story of this past year. That's true. Yeah. Not just modern-day Babe Ruth, but in truth, Babe Ruth never had a season where simultaneously, yeah. he had seasons where he did both, but where simultaneously he was that good a pitcher and that good a hitter. Mm -hmm. I think, ironically, baseball has a better chance to expand better globally right now than domestically, <laughs> you know, because like in Asia, you're right. Hotani, oh, man, this kid, he is amazing, you know. Uh, he's a box office draw, too, in a way that a homegrown player isn't. You know, the homegrown team, I think, is a bigger deal than the player, it seems like, in baseball, with these few exceptions. Yeah, baseball has a lot of big individual stars. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., his dad is a Hall of Famer. He plays for the Toronto Blue Jays. Right. Nothing wrong with playing for the Blue Jays, but that doesn't resonate with some guy in Tacoma. Right. You know, like the, the Braves, for example, the Braves against the Astros in the World Series. The Braves have so many appealing players, mm -hmm. but most of them, with the exception of Freddie Freeman, who had been the MVP last year and has been with the team for like a decade, with the exception of Freddie Freeman, most of those players were relatively unknown to the casual American yeah. sports fan until they wound up at the World Series. And actually, the best player on their team, Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the four or five best young players of baseball, was injured at midseason. So he wasn't there for any of the postseason. They won uh, without him. But that would have been a great platform for a player like that. And I think three of their best players, I think, were acquired during the season. So you didn't associate yes. them with the franchise the way Jordan was a Chicago Bull, you know, Bird was a Celtic, you know. There's that people are emblazoned with like Montana 49er, you know, have that association with your team and that sort of thing kind of builds that relationship with the audience, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very important factor. Uh, and the Braves may do after injuries and, and whatnot decimated yeah. 
outfield. They got three new outfielders, and they all came through. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's nice, but nobody yeah. really cares. Right. And I, I do this for a living. Even I have it. Well, let me let me make sure. Okay, they got Duval from over here, and they got Jock Peterson from over there. From the Dodgers. It, it just doesn't – It. I mean, I was happy my Dodgers won too, but, man, it just means something else when – the other teams win. I can't explain it. And for me, I wonder if baseball is on the clock. You know what's happened? You, you've hit upon one aspect of it. Baseball has become a local and regional sport yeah, rather than a national sport. Mm-hmm. The ratings during the summertime for individual teams, the Cardinals in St. Louis, the Yankees in New York, the Red Sox on Nesson throughout New England, those ratings are very, very high. Right. But the national ratings are not what they once Mm -hmm. were. When I was doing the game of the week for NBC in the 80s, after Saturday afternoon games would get ratings that primetime programs would envy. Now, Mm -hmm. there were games that got ratings of nine and 10 on a Saturday afternoon because it was a national event. There weren't uh, so many games on television and so many highlight shows on ESPN and on the baseball network. There's zillions of games. Whereas if it was 1981 and you said to yourself, wait a minute, Fernando Valenzuela is pitching for the Dodgers against Johnny Bench and the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not going to mow on now. I'm going to watch <laughs> right. this game because yeah. I live in Tallahassee and I there's no baseball team here right. except maybe minor league. This is the one game. This is truly the game of the week. Now there's a zillion games coming at you from every direction and people root for their home team but they don't really know the other players in the league and that's one of the advantages that football has there's only one game a week per team but let's say you're watching tom brady and the buccaneers play the atlanta falcons and that's the game on but at halftime you're seeing highlights of every game and on the post game you're seeing highlights of every game and so if a team came from nowhere some team that had no real national profile but they got hot and all of a sudden found themselves in the Super Bowl, not only would you have been seeing their highlights as the season moved along, but once they got to the playoffs, every one of those games is on national television, not on cable, on broadcast television, unopposed at a time of the year, January, when people are inside, when television ratings are high. And Mm -hmm. so by the time they get there, even if they didn't have that profile, even if they weren't Belichick and Brady or whatever it might be, uh, by the time they got there, even casual fans would know their head coach, their quarterback, and a handful of players. Yeah. With all, a lot of times when you get to the biggest events, to the casual fan, the participants have come out of the shadows. It's like, who are these guys? Yeah. I think it. a lot of it could be technology, too. You, as you were saying that, I was thinking back, not that I was alive back then, but um, I feel like baseball – had its best relationship with the audience when radio was king. Because when you think about it, Bob, when you have a radio on and the way that baseball is called, it's like they're having a conversation with a friend, you know? I mean, and so you're washing the dishes or you're outside and say, and now we have uh, so-and-so come to the plate, you know, last year he was uh, da-da-da-da, and they did this, this, and then, oh, and now he hits the ball, you know, it was this conversation, and you got to know, stats behind the players you got to know information about the players you were in this relationship it's funny it i think broadcasting actually has a lot to do with it and the flip side of that is this and i'll ask you about this uh like if you watch any of the sports shows that are on during the week like first take Mm -hmm. or one of those those are very popular now Mm -hmm. bob during the world series like you have an important game 
the next morning, they wouldn't even mention it. It wouldn't even be a World Series game. And they would instead talk about a regular season basketball game over a World Series game. That's crazy. It kind of it kind of breaks my heart. It, yes. It really, uh, but you you hit it on the broadcasting side. Baseball really was at its best when it was a radio game. Yeah. And when the television games were kind of a special treat, the game of the week, right. the all-star game, the World Series. And it's why the relationship, even now, the relationship between local fans and their team's announcer is yeah. a different kind of relationship. Completely different. People watch someone like let's say al michaels who's been Mm -hmm. so great for so long so people respect him they admire him they enjoy him but their local announcer they love him that's right they feel like he's one of them um i'll never forget being in st louis in 1987 the cardinals were playing the giants in the lcs Mm -hmm. and game seven was in st louis the cardinals won and advanced the world series so now there's a big celebration on the field and Cardinal fans are very passionate. They're some of the best fans in baseball. And the fans don't want to leave the park. They want to cherish the moment and, and yeah. have it last for a while. And Jack Buck, Joe Buck's dad, a Hall of Fame voice of the Cardinals, one of the best baseball broadcasters ever, and also a guy who did every charity event. He was just part of the community. Right. You know, over time, probably one in every five St. Louisans could have said that at some point or other, they bumped into Jack Buck or they went to a banquet that he spoke at. Or So now I happen to be standing behind Jack. He was broadcasting the game. I wasn't in the booth at the mezzanine level, kind of overlooking the crowd. And somebody seated behind home plate turned and looked up and saw Jack and waved at him. Mm-hmm. And Jack leaned over and waved <laughs> back. And the next thing you know, thousands of people had turned around wow. and they were just waving at him. And what that said in an unspoken way was, this is a moment for our team. Yeah. You're the person who brought us our team. Right. You, we're connected to you in a way that, that no matter how great, no network announcer could ever be connected to a group of fans. Yeah, my brother, who's a stand-up comedian, I lost him early this year to COVID. Mark was so funny. He uh, And he loved like Chick Hearn, who was uh, the Lakers basketball player. And he loved uh, Finn Scully and uh, all Jerry Duggett, all those guys. Uh, Ross yeah. Porter. Ross Porter was his favorite of the Dodgers. And Mark used to do this bit where he had Ross Porter calling the Iran-Iraq war. <laughs> you know? And he would go, I can't do it just because for those of you uh, watching the uh, uh, Sandinistas and Contras, we now join the Iran-Iraqi con- uh, conflict now in progress. And there goes a scud missile, and that's going to be all foul. <laughs> Ross had lots of stats. Yes, he's a the Iraqi skipper is uh, Saddam Hussein. Last year he killed up to forty thousand. This year he's on record to to slaughter as much. And his sons Uday and Kuse, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's just calling the game like that. It was I can't do it justice, but it was so funny the way that Ross Porter is telling you all these things as the game is going on. You know, this episode is brought to you by Cars dot com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. 
Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. When I think of great plays in the past, most of them are indelibly linked to the call. You know, like the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win. Or down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. You know, or yes, sir. You know, the Vern Lundquist thing. It's like the call and the play seem linked. Where It doesn't feel that way anymore. Am I missing it now? Or does it, it just doesn't feel like those are linked as much as they used to be. I think maybe for local fans. Yeah. Uh, they are. But all the ones you just mentioned transcended local rooting interests. They're part of the lore of the game. Kirk Gibson once told me, hit one of the most dramatic home runs, as you know, in baseball history, like Roy Hobbs and Robert Redford's Roy Hobbs and the natural limping to the plate and somehow impossibly hitting this home run. And Vin Scully called it on television mm-hmm. brilliantly as always. Yep. Jack Buck called it on radio. I don't believe what I just saw. Mm-hmm. And the way NBC directed it, uh, the live cuts, the way Harry Coyle practically invented going back to the late 1940s, how baseball was directed on television Harry was still in the booth. That might have been his last, still in the remote truck, might have been his last World Series. I think it was the way he directed it and the replays and the way the whole thing was put together. Kirk Gibson told me a few years ago that part of how he remembers it is shaped by the way it was televised and the way it was broadcast. He did it. He was in it. it. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's fascinating. It's funny. Even that's even a commentary about how memory works, too, you know that his memory has been Scully inside of his head, you know? Wow. Right. It, your point is correct, that it's in, it's inseparable. Yeah. Um, and you, you cited Howard Cosell uh, yes. when George Foreman knocked Joe Frazier down. So now, I don't know if this will amuse or interest you or not. I was doing a thing with Kelsey Grammer. It was the 200th uh, episode of Frazier. And they decided to do a compilation show. And NBC asked me, to kind of be the interlocutor and assembled sure. cast show. So Kelsey Grammer had and has uh, an ability to do physical comedy. Mm-hmm. And he was so talking yeah. about how Dick Van Dyke, you know, tripping over the, uh, uh, the Ottoman on the opening of, of his show. And I asked him to demonstrate it. And he stood up and he did a pratfall and he's on the floor. And I said, down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. <laughs> right. But fortunately, none of the cast got it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sitting with egg on my face. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> They're like, who's this crazy man? Yeah. Do, right. do you have a favorite call of yours that uh, someone has made that really stuck with you, even though it might be a peer, or maybe it's one of your favorite calls? It's There was something stick in your mind as man. That's, that's the one. Well, I think almost all of us would tell you that it's rare that you get a perfect call. Mm -hmm. Al Michaels call at the end of the miracle on ice in 1980, Placid. it's simple, but it's perfect. And it's simple. 
Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Now in transcript, that might not seem anything more than okay. But as it played in real time, and as it still echoes down the corridors of time, it's perfect, not just because of the way he said it, but the timing. Yeah. If he had said it as time expired, it wouldn't have been as effective because he paced it out. It was on television. So the puck was cleared from behind the goal out to center ice. So now there was no chance, even though it was maybe 10 seconds, no chance for the Russian team to regroup and even get a shot on goal. So the outcome now is clear and he's counting down five seconds. Do you believe in miracles? And then he, he waited. And when he said yes, was the exact moment when the American players thrust their sticks in the air, yeah. almost like the sticks were the exclamation point after the yes. And then he shut up because the crowd is going berserk. So it isn't just, especially on television, it isn't just what you say. Yeah. It's how you time it because it's a caption beneath a picture that already exists. On the other hand, radio wise, you cannot do better than Vin Scully's call of Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965. And it isn't just the call of the last pitch. It's the whole inning. When I first heard that, I was 13 years old. And I actually thought, well, I didn't, I didn't hear it. I read it. It was in a, a compilation of baseball essays and poems and stories uh, that was collected in something called the Fireside Book of Baseball, yeah. which I got Christmas present. And I was, you know, just crazy about baseball. And I read every word of it. And part of it was a transcript of Scully's call word for word of the ninth inning of Koufax's perfect game. And my thought was, well, this is, this was written after the fact. No, it was extemporaneous as it happened. And if he had a chance, he'd be too modest to say it, but if he had a chance to go back and change a comma, why would you? perfect in the moment perfect game perfect broadcast that is amazing it's i i'm as you're talking i'm thinking about today are do we have those type of people because and this isn't a a criticism of the people that do it like a lot of ex-athletes are doing commentary in your booths now and they're very good like tony romo's excellent you know and many of these people but it is different from a sports journalist that can shape something differently you know your sports guys i think they give us great insight into the game that we may not have gotten especially at the high level they're going to give us x's and o's but i do appreciate those other you know that other side of it the pros you know and i think there's a lot of pros missing that ah, i go "Mm, you You, you and i are on the same wavelength when it comes to this you want the analyst, the person who has insight, yeah. but you don't want the entire broadcast or 90% of the broadcast to be that, you know, right. how did Vin Scully or Jack Buck or Jack Whitaker back in the day or Jim McKay ever get by without stat cast, million analytic aspect? Here's how they got by. They captured the moment, yeah. not just what was happening, but what the atmosphere was, how it felt to be at that event, at that ballpark, some story about, this guy who's playing second base, or especially at the Olympics with McKay, someone who prior to the Olympics, the American audience had no idea who this person even was, let alone detail about 
him or her, filling that in to give you a reason to have a feeling to care one way or another about this competitor and his yeah. or her quest to win a gold medal or whatever it might be. That's something different than a granular analysis of what's happening, which has its place. But as somebody once wrote, I do not need an autopsy performed on every pitch yes. of a baseball. That's you right. Know? Like when you said that, I still have an indelible memory of Jim McKay guiding me through the Olympics. He made me love the Olympics and I'll never forget him at the Munich uh, Olympics in 72 when, you know, the, uh, the assault happened and everything. Jim McKay, his broadcast from there is still indelible in my mind and how great it was to have someone like him there, you know. Yeah, perfect touch. He had yes. a journalist he was, eye. He was so human, too. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, he was a reporter, but he was so human. The emotion he felt was honest. He had a, a literate touch. Yes. But also common touch. That's right. And, and that's what connected him to the audience. He was such a modest man, Larry, but mm -hmm. he once confided in me on the air that one of his proudest moments was when he got back from Munich. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was a lot of correspondence because people were moved by what happened. And this is back in the time when people not only wrote letters, they sent telegrams. That's right. And he's in his office at ABC. And there's a telegram from Walter Cronkite. You did your profession proud. Mm. Uh, that period in sports stands out to a lot of us now because in some ways it's related, in some ways it's not to the political atmosphere that we're in. You know, the protests back then weren't really accepted by the audience at large in many ways. You know, your Tommy Smith's Juan Carlos in the Olympics, very controversial. Muhammad Ali, people forget, was hated, hated during his day. It was a smaller group that liked Ali and a bigger group that hated him during that time before he made his comeback, you know. Um, and now we seem to be in a different position where I feel like people almost expect political stances from their athletes. You know what? Do you have an opinion on that and how it's changed or reflection on it at all? Yeah, I think that um, we need to make distinctions. Yeah. When Smith and Carlos raised their black gloved fists on the metal stand in Mexico City in 1968, it was a singular moment and it was a profound statement that couldn't really be challenged in good faith by anybody. Right. It, they, it was, here we are, we're representing our country. Mm -hmm. When we go back to our country, we will not be treated in all cases and maybe in most cases, as well as our white countrymen and women. Mm -hmm. That was a profound statement. Now, sometimes people will make statements that are subject to debate or they're too right. sweeping in their generality. Sure. Um, and it loses impact in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd. It had great impact, mm -hmm. but the games were being played in a bubble. Right. There were no fans in the stands. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. That was a moment in time. Yeah. Players linking arms, players from both teams linking mm -hmm. arms. That was a profound statement. Um, sometimes now, even if, even if one agrees with the cause and the sentiment, a reasonable response might be, we don't need this all the time while we're watching the game, especially because there are zillions of platforms now 
It's not 1968 anymore. Right. Um, every every league has its own network devoted just to that league mm-hmm. uh, and, and its games and its offseason activities. I would like to see uh, each league say they're going to have a weekly show um, that would repeat many times because they're 24-7 and make that a forum for players who have a point of view, have an informed moderator and let those let these issues be discussed with nuance and depth rather than just through gestures. There are times when gestures make sense and make an impact. And then there are times when it almost just becomes a low hum and it doesn't have the same impact. I'm not diminishing the importance of involvement. Like I think LeBron James is at his best when he's done things like help with voter registration drives, the NBA players. And the school that he started, mm-hmm. the Promise School yeah. in Akron. It's amazing. That I think I think that stuff has had a real tangible effect. And sometimes he's made sweeping statements which contain truth, but maybe anything. Sloppy. Say, <laughs> not, you know, let's let's put it this way, without getting into particular Kareem Abdul Jabbar is not sloppy. No. Kareem Kareem's essays, when Kareem speaks, he makes mm-hmm. a point. Arthur Ashe was just at a very high intellectual level. He was very well read. He knew what was going on. We were not worthy of Arthur Ashe during his time. We were not worthy of him. Yeah. You know, um, I, I guess we're, I'm going off in different directions. That's okay. Here, but... That's okay. That's what I'm here for, Bob. I'm here to corral it and get. <laughs> that's what a, that's what a podcast is about. But before I forget, though, yeah, um, you mentioned Howard Cosell for a second, and yes. then we mentioned Carlos. People can Google, it's on YouTube, what Howard Cosell said in 1968. Mm-hmm. You know, people can say that Cosell was overbearing and sometimes he was obnoxious, but at his best among broadcasters, there were very few writers even that would, were doing this, white writers, but there were some. But among broadcasters at that time, sports broadcasters, he stood alone and he stood tall. And if, if you Google what he said, even in that moment, uh, about Smith and Carlos and about what was going on with the IOC and how they expelled mm-hmm. Smith and Carlos, li- literally expelled them from the Olympics, yeah. sent them sent them home. Um, what he said was so bold yeah. and so profound and on point. Um, and with Muhammad Ali, he did the same. You know, it, yeah. it may seem like it's nothing now, but when he said, look, the man says his name is Muhammad Ali, that's what you call him because that's his name. Now, he's not Cassius Clay now. Um, That doesn't seem radical now. It was then. I I agree with you. Howard Cosell is not given his due for that time. And he was not only a white man. This was a Jew. This is a Jewish man who's who's hand in hand with his black brother, who is now a Muslim. You know, and the the combination of that, (laughs) you know, of the fearlessness with which Cosell did it, and he didn't have to do it. He gave Ali a platform also during a time when he didn't have to. You know, um, the hate mail was ridiculous. Later, Howard Cosell... You blank, blank, blank. Yeah. And blank, blank, blank. And they remembered that he was Jewish during that time too, Bob. You know, he got a lot of slurs, you know. But he mm-hmm. never put that forward as being a thing or whatever how Cosell unnecessarily was brought down at the end of his career for just that stupid thing that he said that didn't mean anything. And I felt people 
have misremembered Howard Cosell in that way. And I'm glad that you bring that up because he stood up for the right thing at the right time when no one else, when no one else was at a huge cost, you know, you know, connecting uh, this back to what you asked earlier um, about protests. Yeah. Part of the reason Ali was so impactful, even though many people, as you said, uh, resented him or worse Mm -hmm. in the sixties and in the seventies, a boxing's an individual sport. Mm-hmm. It's not a team sport. And every heavyweight championship fight then was a big event. Right. Most Americans don't even know who the heavyweight champion of the world is now. But then they knew not only Muhammad Ali, they knew the constellation of contenders around him. Yeah. And they knew the champions of the other divisions. Boxing was more of a mainstream sport. Another sport in decline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if the, sport, if the fights live or on pay-per-view, the next weekend... They'd have they'd replay the fight on Wide World of Sports on ABC, and Howard Cosell would be sitting there talking to Joe Frazier or or to Muhammad Ali. But on top of it, even the people who vilified him, they were drawn to him because he was so charismatic. He was so funny. Right. He's in a category of his own. Yeah. You know. Um. And so so that that made it that made a difference. Um. I'm gonna try. Oh, I mentioned Arthur Ashe. I was interviewing Arthur Ashe once, and I posed this question. I said, Arthur, I know you um, greatly admire Jackie Robinson, and you're aware of the story of how Jackie, who was a much more combative man by nature than you are, Arthur, he agreed to Branch Rickey's, the agreement with Branch Rickey was, at least for the first few years, no matter what happens, you can't fight back. You have to hold your temper because people will judge you differently and unfairly. And if this is going to work, you've got to be above board 100% of the time. And I said, did you carry yourself in such a gentlemanly fashion, in part because that example is in your mind as you stand at center court at Wimbledon, you're the only black face, not only on the court, in the entire arena. There's no other black person there. And here was his answer. He said, you know, everything you say is true. And I knew Jackie Robinson's story. But in truth, I am the way I am, because if I wasn't growing up, my father would have kicked my ass. Mm-hmm. So some sometimes the way people are is a result of their upbringing and their personal influences more so than their political um, inclinations. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, the sportscaster and the athlete and Ali and, you know, Cosell and, you know, Cosell being the conduit by which Ali can have this conversation with the audience. But now it's kind of different where athletes, that conduit is social media, you know, and it almost feels like they're pushing the journalists to the side a bit, you know, and saying, sorry, journalists, I've got my own little way. I want to communicate with people directly. Do do you see that as a threat to sports journalism at all? I do. Um, And I'll stipulate, I say that with no resentment because I'm in a position of privilege. Network broadcasters who have high profiles generally can get the interviews that they want mm-hmm. um, generally have a different kind of access. We're not in a scrum. We're not at a press conference. We get the one-on-ones. We get the individual audiences. Uh, so I've been lucky in that respect. Right. But I, I don't have any problem with players using social media or using an outlet like Derek Jeter's The Players' Tribune, mm-hmm. where players get to write or tell their own stories unfiltered. It's direct uh, player or athlete to the audience. I don't have any problem with that as a supplement. But if you lose, if 
people who are journalists trying to serve the audience lose their access, Mm -hmm. then something's going to be lost. And I'm not talking so much about the professional loss to those individuals. I'm talking about the loss to the audience. If the audience is getting all their stuff from Twitter or or from someone's social media feed or just highlight shows on television, mm-hmm. they're, they're not getting the benefit of the great and insightful writers and in some cases broadcasters that you and I grew up reading um, and listening to. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of the great Jim Murray, who... I miss his columns a lot. But, you know, just to, to finish up to your point, Colin Kaepernick, for example, mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick is a significant figure, but Colin doesn't really want to sit for an interview. Yeah. I would love to interview Colin Kaepernick. I would not be hostile to him at all. Mm-hmm. I respect much of what he's done, but he ought to have to answer in an ideal world, reasonably skeptical questions. That's where, you know, if he answers them well, it's a big plus for him. Um, but he has chosen, he's got this Netflix documentary out now. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's telling his own story in his own way, which I respect. But I think it would be a benefit to discerning viewers and listeners if he sat down, it doesn't have to be with me, sits down with somebody who's going to, to ask him the questions and try to get the responses that people are interested in. But a lot of big time athletes now, are so well protected. They have such such an apparatus around them that that they're picking and choosing based on what their safe harbor is. You know, Aaron Rodgers goes to talk to Pat McAfee, right. uh, who has a radio show, you know, former football player, and that's fine. But that's the only place that he's chosen to uh, to express himself. And you know, he's got some splaining to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing like i think social media could be the reason why and you know i'm sure it existed before but i think athletes uh there's more d- divisiveness politically now than i feel there's ever been with athletes and the things that they say they fall down political lines now more so than ever you know the whole aaron Rodgers thing you know before People just liked him or didn't like him. Now it's you're either red or blue of how you feel about Aaron Rodgers. It's like based on a vaccine, you know, it's like, how did that happen? Same thing with Kyrie Irving, you know, before it's like, wait, isn't Kyrie Irving a flat earther? Maybe we shouldn't listen to Kyrie Irving. Then he takes a a stand. It's like it becomes a red and blue thing of how you feel about Kyrie Irving. It's crazy. And uh, every time I venture in this direction, I get some low back but what the hell i'm still standing what the hell bob yeah <laughs> you think about this right yeah people take even with aaron Rodgers, although the overwhelming re- response is a he was disingenuous and didn't really directly uh, address in an honest way his vaccination status and b he ought to get the most people believe he ought he ought to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and c uh because he didn't he cost his team one game and maybe two. Right. Uh, because today is the first day he can even come back and practice. And you can't have an effective practice without your starting quarterback there all during all during the week. Yeah. But there are still some people there. They're out there who view this solely as Aaron Rodgers is being canceled by a woke mob. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. He is now a symbol of personal freedom. Yeah. Um, and mm. in truth. This is this is what we know. Michael Smirkanish, as we're talking now on a Saturday afternoon, 
Michael Smirconish this morning on CNN had a very interesting segment. And for context, Michael Smirconish is a moderate Republican. Yeah. He worked for Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. at one time. All right. So he has this segment. And there was a survey in which eight notions about COVID, eight misinformation notions, Mm -hmm. demonstrably false, all eight of them were presented to people in, in a broad survey. Those who believed four or more of the eight false assertions were overwhelmingly disproportionately Fox News viewers, mm-hmm. Newsmax viewers. I'm talking about large numbers. Yeah. Whereas those who believed even one or two of them who were MSNBC viewers, CNN viewers, NPR listeners, network news viewers, ABC, CBS, NBC, Mm -hmm. just a tiny fraction of that. And those who are dying are disproportionately in red states. There's some kind of correlation, if not causation, going on here. And something which should be a straightforward Mm -hmm. public health question has been politicized. And those who are who view this most through the prism of the big issue here is personal freedom and what whatnot, the people that are listening to them and are influenced by them are being disproportionately affected medically. They they are harming their own audience. Yeah. I was gonna say it's a shame you're right, because Aaron Rodgers, um, I don't disagree with Aaron Rodgers only because he's a thirty seven year old fit man, <laughs> you know, play you know, who probably could recover from COVID very more easily than someone, as you say, who's going to be more vulnerable, but might take the example of someone like that because they, they respect that person. They might, they're probably more open to listening to that person, not because they think they're an expert, but because they already have that open line of trusting that person. Sure. You know, but there's another point with Aaron Rodgers that I made last night on HBO. And I also made it on CNN a few days ago that I'm surprised that other people haven't focused on, which is this. Let's leave the political aspect aside, Mm -hmm. whether we think some of the takes on this are mistaken or not. The NFL has specific protocols that were agreed to in combination by the league and the Players Association, the Players Association that represents Aaron Rodgers and, and all the other players in the league. And the protocol is clear. If you test positive and you're unvaccinated, you have to quarantine for 10 days. Whereas if you test positive and you're vaccinated, you can then have two negative tests spaced 24 hours apart and you can play. So it's very likely that a vaccinated Aaron Rodgers would not have missed a single game, even if the unvaccinated uh, Aaron Rodgers had identical symptoms or non-symptoms to the vaccinated player. You're 100 percent right that in the vast majority of cases, a fit 37 year old man unvaccinated test positive for COVID. It's not going to the hospital, not going to have, in most cases, a s- severe symptoms. But the rules are what they are. You, he, Aaron Rodgers could say, I think these rules are ridiculous. I petition the league to change the rules or relax it. But for the moment, those are the rules. And therefore, knowing those rules, he cost his team. At least yeah, but aim and maybe two. I it's a little messier than that. I I would not say that he cost his team, Bob. I would say that his team was in concert with him and colluded with him in this because 
when he made that statement, his team knows his status and they didn't, yes. they didn't correct them. They knew the costs of this going in. So he, his team wasn't cost something. They knew they, they put this down payment down, you know, with Aaron Rodgers on this uncertain future, you know? So what happened was that's what's messy about this. He gave this bullshit answer that his team knew was a lie. They knew it was mm -hmm. a bullshit. He didn't fool. He didn't trick his team into thinking he was vaccinated. He tricked all of us. Right. So, yeah. so from us, it looks like he heard his team said, no, 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 no. His team knew what was going on. You know, he's, he's hurting the fans who want to see Aaron Rodgers play, you know, and that sort of thing. But I mean, as far as I, I don't feel sorry for his team, his team knew what was going on. Well, I, I agree with you, but here's where the distinction I want to make is this. You're thinking of the team as the franchise, the Green Bay Packers franchise, and the people who run the franchise mm -hmm. who could have stepped in and said, Aaron was disingenuous. He is an unvaccinated player. But as you know, they have a touchy relationship with him. He almost tried to, to bolt uh, before this season. They don't know how much longer. He's kind of a different dude in in, in many right. ways, but he's one of the best ever. And they were seven and one at the time of uh, that, that, that all this stuff played out. And they're walking a tightrope trying to get to right. the Super Bowl. He might go host Jeopardy permanently. We got to hold on to him. <laughs> right. So his, the franchise, yes. But think of all the other players in that locker room busting their ass in yeah. practice and on the field, and they all want to get to the Super Bowl, and he's the most important guy. So from a football standpoint, mm -hmm. it's difficult to defend it. But just to also to backtrack, when you're talking about everything gets politicized, Yeah, I was a little kid and so were you, but I don't recall anybody saying in the 1950s, I'm not getting that polio vaccine. Right. <laughs> Jonas Salk, you know what? He's one day there'll be someone named right. Fauci. I won't. I won't trust him either. And Dwight Eisenhower, forget about him. Yes. I don't trust Dwight Eisenhower. This is all. This is all a plot. You know what they did? They got their kids vaccinated, and there was more polio after that. And another example of what, what you're talking about that's happening now is Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm oh, not in that yeah, yeah. moment. I don't know what how good a job the defense and prosecution are doing. And it seems possible that the, the harshest of the charges will not hold up. But this becomes a political thing too, where depending upon what you're watching and listening to, Kyle Rittenhouse is a victim here. And what he did was somehow a patriotic thing to do, regardless of the defense. And apparently, you know, he was hit with a skateboard and someone pointed a gun at him. And there might have been a point that was reached where he, he felt he had to defend himself. But let's take a step back. Let's just go to the starting point. What is what measure of sanity is there when a 17 year old kid with an AR-15 crosses state lines to involve himself in a dangerous situation to protect the quote lives and property of people he doesn't know, a 17 year old kid. So no matter what the fair outcome of the trial on these specific charges is, that is insane. And I'd like to hear someone on Fox News say, yes, I understand his defense and there may be merit in his defense against these charges, but step one is insane. And if step one is never taken, we're not here. Yeah, I think, I mean, to jump into that, those types of situations, unfortunately, 
Step one is never prosecuted. <laughs> you know, the step ones are never prosecuted. You know, it's the it's the ones after that, which is why we're kind of always in the situation, you know, that we're in. Uh, what one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, uh, Bob, is you gave some uh, impassioned essays about the concussions in the NFL yeah. a few years ago. And I thought that was very brave of you, by the way. I give you a lot of credit for that. Um, I didn't know if. Well, the reason why I say that, I didn't know if that came at the expense of a relationship, maybe with the NFL or NBC. Was people have maybe rumbled about that? Do you think there was any of that going on? It had an impact. Um, to me, I, I, you know, it might have taken a little bit of nerve, but I don't think it was all that courageous. I had a well-established career. I've been doing it for a long time, uh, and the consequence to me was not really terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't fire me, as some people think. Mm-hmm. We reached a settlement because among friends, and these people were my friends, we realized that there was some passive-aggressive stuff going on here. What once was a perfect symbiotic relationship had gotten sideways. Um, and I was there more just because they wanted my name on the letterhead. And I wanted to do things that I felt were truer to myself and mm-hmm. had a journalistic element. And some of that wasn't what they wanted me to do. Not all of it, but sometimes we were in conflict. Why do you want to be in conflict with people who are essentially your friends, who essentially you respect, even if there are some disagreements and who in the big picture, NBC, even if some of the individuals change over time in the big picture, I owe almost everything to NBC. Mm -hmm. They gave me a great life. They helped me to fulfill the dreams that I had as a kid. Uh, They, they gave, they gave me personal and professional wealth, um, which, which made my life better, which allowed me to give wonderful experiences to, to my kids and to my friends. So in the big picture, I, not only do I not have resentment, I have gratitude. But sometimes, like even in the best of marriages, you can get to a friction point. Mm. And sometimes it's better when you've reached a point of diminishing returns to, I'll use a strained analogy, if your lifetime batting average is going down mm-hmm. and you know that the next seasons are only going to bring it down further, <laughs> let's maintain it at the highest level that we can. We see, we see where the arc is going. Let's stop it right here before it goes all the way down. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're back, uh, as I said, in the saddle uh, over at HBO. It's a great show. I love the discussion for my, my boy, Bomani Jones, is killing it over there. You know, that one whip smart, yeah. and really talented guy. Yeah, he's dropping lots of hundreds on that show. Lots of hundreds. He sure is. He's a real asset. You know, we want a show that has some texture to it. Not just yeah. an echo chamber, from my point of view. Right. I, I overlook to some extent with Bobani, but I want him to say something either that I might disagree with or I might not say it because he's got a different worldview than I do. So that's that's a plus. Yeah. Any uh, people who are coming up that we can look forward to, Bob, before we sign off here? Or is there an athlete you wish you had had a, had a chance to sit down with, one of those wish list types of thing that ah, it just never happened? Well, you know, Sandy Koufax mm. is private and i respect it and admire it yeah. i think he understands that um it, it's just not his thing to be out there in that way he carries himself with yeah. great dignity he does uh, yeah. what he's done and how he did it speaks for itself so there's no reason to be out there but sandy koufax was you know kind of the the white whale mm-hmm. um for for sports journalists 
uh, the way J.D. Salinger, everybody wanted a right. J.D. Salinger interview. Yeah. And, and the more the more he he resisted, the more uh, of kind of a holy grail it became. That's right. Um, and he never he never relented. You know, now I mentioned Colin Kaepernick. I, I think a, a real interview with LeBron James now, a lot to admire about him, both as a player and as a person, but also questions to be asked. So LeBron James would would be a governor. Oh, and here's one. Barry Bonds. Wow, that would be fascinating. I'd love for you to talk to Barry Bonds. Do you think he'd do your show? Well, he was the first person I asked when I came back to HBO. And we had a very, very cordial exchange. Yeah. Uh, Barry's story is an interesting one because if Barry never used performance-dancing drugs, he already was one of the greatest players of all time. And unless Ken Griffey Jr. at his peak would rival him, he was the greatest player of his generation. Yeah. So let's say he finished with 630 home runs and whatever the other numbers are mm-hmm. he would have been in the hall of fame on the first ballot and he would have been admired he's one of the smartest players ever not just baseball iq but he's a smart guy period mm-hmm. and when he wants to be he's very engaging and i'm told that quietly he does a lot of charitable things but he's got stuff to answer for yeah. and this year is the last year that he's on the hall of fame ballot one of the greatest players of all time may not may not make it i i I would love to be the conduit for him to tell his story yeah i have a disagreement about that whole area and i'm probably in a small minority i don't view that performance enhancing drug argument as the reason why these people were great you know so many players were doing things like that i agree with you that barry bonds was great before and after that and also there was that whole slippery slope issue with baseball saying you guys can tell us what you did this information is never going to get out next day. Sorry, the information got out and you're not going to get in the Hall of Fame because now the information is out. Like, you know, people forget that that's how all of this information came out through these leaks, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know. There were leaks when the, when they did the survey testing. Yes, uh, yes. Shortly after the century. But with with bonds, it came out because of the Balco situation. The Balco situation, right. McGuire and Sosa. Sosa is never acknowledged. McGuire did acknowledge in an interview with me uh, when he come back to the game and become a coach with the Cardinals. And he did directly acknowledge that he had done it. But Mark, who I like personally, continues to maintain that he did it just so that he could deal with his injuries and it didn't help him be any better. And he would have hit all those home runs anyway. And he would have been a great home run hitter, but I don't know that he would have hit 70 home runs in a season. You know, when you look at it, Larry, the guys who did it in that period of time, um, there, there had been two 60 home run seasons in baseball history. Mm-hmm. Babe Ruth once, Roger Maris once. Sammy Sosa did it three times. Mm-hmm. Mark McGuire did it twice. And Barry Bonds did it once and would have done it multiple times if they didn't walk him all the time after that season. And it's all in a small cluster of years over the long span of baseball history, all in that long cluster of years by three guys who are beyond question connected to performance enhancing drugs. So, was Bonds great to begin with? Yeah. But did did it go up many notches because of PEDs? I think the evidence is pretty clear that it did. I will just say this. I think part of it is because baseball is so freaking consumed with numbers and stats. You know? Yep. But did that help Bonds win championships? I don't think so. No, because they only got to one World Series and they lost that World Series. Okay. So what's the bottom line? That's what I mean. If baseball wasn't so consumed with with stats like it wouldn't be an issue because if it helps your team win okay now we have a uh, an issue but if it's just stats it's like guys 
stop being so nerdy about stats. Well, you know, here's the thing. <laughs> Numbers matter. You know, an avid fan, there's not no Kareem Abdul. Rings. Rings, Bob. Rings. Right. But, but, 714, then 755, 56 straight games, 406. I know. The numbers matter in baseball. They're sacred. Yes. And the steroid era screwed with the numbers. I know. I know. That's all. I'm just saying it's all the nerds who are concerned about that these numbers are broken. That's all. I'm just making that. I'm being, I know it's, I'm in a minority here. I don't mind. (laughs) But Bob, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us. Guys, uh, you know, when you watch this show, you remember how much you miss Bob Costas weighing in and having these conversations. It's so good. Tune in to, to uh, Back on the Record with Bob Costas and HBO. A lot of good stuff. And these stories, just, man, there's so much. By the way, I love seeing Candace Parker on your show. I think she's one of the bright stars in uh, in uh, sports journalism now and broadcasting and all that kind of stuff, you know. She she is great in oh. every way. She's a great player. Yeah. She has a great presence yes and she's smart and good on her feet she is. her little back with Shaq on the it's air the best. are it's the best they're they're great yeah thank you bob costas you guys this episode is brought to you by hotels.com I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.